Welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset. It's a bonus reaction pod this week for the Bledisloe Cup number two. Of course, won by the All Blacks, 57-22 to retain uh, the trophy for a 19th year. And we've got a very happy uh, Liam Napier joining us uh, across from across the Tasman on uh, this Monday morning. Of course, Christy Doran fighting it out. Uh, five days into quarantine following the uh, Tokyo Olympics as well. Uh, gents, um, just a, uh, well, certainly 40 minutes of, of good rugby from both teams and then 40 minutes of sensational rugby from the All Blacks to, uh, as I said, retain that trophy for another year. Um, Liam, um, let's go to you, mate, to, to kick it off. Um, thanks for joining us first up. Um, I guess uh, the question, did you ever seriously think that the All Blacks were under any serious um, pressure there, uh, that little, uh, obviously that huge uh, play from Tate McDermott uh, before halftime there to get the Wallabies in just um, six points down at the break. Um, did you ever really seriously think that they were going to be threatened in that second half? Yeah, look, uh, it was a, a great time to strike, wasn't it, from a Wallabies perspective and, and just on Tate McDermott, you know, he was uh, one of the best players on the park. Uh, I think, you know, there's, I guess, a, a ray of hope in, in some of those young guys. Um, he was brilliant, very threatening. Uh, and I also think the All Blacks were probably fortunate in that um, just before that, Dalton Papali'i probably should have been yellow carded. Uh, you know, the All Blacks um, number sevens have got away with a few of those over the years, and you can probably chalk that one up as another. Um, but yeah, look, they, they just Wallabies couldn't maintain it in that second half, and uh, you know they had their chances. But um, when the All Blacks were down to fourteen men and they botched the lineout throw, and uh, Aaron Smith, that's what Aaron Smith um, always seems to do, pull something out from the his bag of tricks. And there was a brilliant play. I think the killer blow that really turned the test, and and the Wallabies heads, I think heads and spirits dropped at that point, and. It was a real procession from then on. So I I, I do worry, I guess, in that uh, it does follow a, a familiar theme and that the All Blacks tend to build from test one to two and three, as was the case last year. And, and you know, you can see with Foster that last week he just rolled out his first choice combinations and you could see those starting to bed in a wee bit and the, the loose forwards and the, in the midfield and... Um, you know, some of the guys they brought in, Will Jordan as well, played really well. So, um, yeah, the All Blacks really stepping up a notch and the Wallabies just not able to live with them. Christy, um, thanks for joining us, mate, uh, again this week. Um, we know you're flat out there at quarantine. Um, I guess from a Wallabies perspective, what was more disappointing from your perspective? Um, was it that botched line-out from, from BPA there straight after halftime uh, when the All Blacks didn't even jump? So you, all you've got to do is throw it somewhere near the inside uh, shoulder of, uh, of your jumper and you're going to get that and, and have the chance to either set a drive or, or move it on quickly. Um, is it two intercepts? Is it the fact they're coming off turnover ball on both occasions? Um, we know how good the All Blacks are at using turnover ball. It still seems very much a work in progress from the Wallabies. Um, when you look back at that 80 minutes, um, what really stands out and you think, my God, that just shouldn't happen? What really stands out is, and hearing Liam's comments there um, as well, New Zealand's ability just to take every chance that comes. I don't think the Wallabies would, were miles away, but you put them down to uh, individual errors. You know, the, the side itself actually played pretty well for the majority of the game. Uh, even 
but but when you when you break down how New Zealand scored two intercept tries twice, the um, forward runs to the ruck and sees a pot of gold at the end of it, tries to get the ball. New Zealand score next phase through brilliant um, through brilliance from Aaron Smith, as, as Liam touched upon. But but also when Jordan Ulysses at the end tries to go in there too. But in addition to that, the, the turnover ball from Lockie Swinton, you know the All Blacks score that next phase in the end through Brody Retallick. And similarly, um, shortly after when when Noel Alessio's uh, kick inside the twenty-two. Um, an up and under from deep in his 22. I'm not sure if that's the right play at that stage of the game. Um, so there, there's already six tries that New Zealand score and, and it comes from basic errors, You really. Like, they're sure, there's under the intensity of a test match arena, but you separate those and then you've still got a lot of good rugby in there. The disappointing thing is that the Wallabies seem to go away from their strengths at the time. So the way that the Wallabies got back into that game was through... Tate McDermott being the real playmaker there and using his forwards, using his loose forwards, particularly like Rob Valentini, to get over the game line. And that actually caused the All Blacks a bit of trouble. Um, it seems like at times, you know, everyone can see the outback play. You know, it's been used through Bernard Foley, Kirtley Beal beforehand for a long, long time. Previously, you had Israel Folau at the end of it, who was just so good to be able to beat the first man and to palm him away that that may work, but it seemed like the Wallabies have just kept on using that same play for six years and it's really got them nowhere. And in fact, it's going backwards. You know, you look at how Rico Ioani, you set that, that first try up and there was an overlap there for sure, but there was also no one running against the grain. Um, and, and, and it was just so, so easy to read. And that's the frustrating thing. And it's interesting Dave Rennie asking and, and telling reporters that, you know, afterwards that there's all that space behind. It didn't, and it's, he didn't say that the players have gone against and away from the playbook, but he was almost admitting that perhaps these guys aren't mature enough at this stage of their careers to recognise where space is on the field because it is there. But unfortunately, the, the first, the first, it goes back to the basics or it goes back to what, Australian rugby is doing at the moment, and that's just flinging the ball wide with no real thought as to how we get there and what point in time we should get there. Liam, from your perspective, when you look at the Wallabies and what Christie's just mentioned there, is it as simple as these are these are growing pains, and they're they're coming up against a side that while they've had you know turnover in personnel since the last World Cup and, and big names um, like the skipper Kieran Reid that. At the heart of this team, there is still the world-class lock pairing. There's still a hooker um, with 50 tests and another one who's got even more on the bench. Um, you've got the best number nine in the world who um, might be playing his, his best rugby um, ever at the moment in Aaron Smith. You've got a world-class 10, um, a new centre pairing, but certainly very dangerous. And then outside backs who, you know, have, have been there and and uh, have shown their finishing capabilities for, for, you know, multiple years at test level. On the flip side, you've got a Wallaby side that, that Dave Rennie is trying to, trying to build, trying to bring together. There's a lot of fresh new blood in it. Um, do Australian fans have to be prepared to just be a little bit patient with this team? Um, and can you see what Dave is trying to do that um, this team has actually built since, say, the Michael Checker? Are they headed in the right direction? Is, and is this a team that, with a bit of time, can perhaps go on and, and uh, you know, improve and be more competitive at, uh, at the top level of, of Test Rugby? 
Yeah, I think there's a few elements there to unpick. Yeah, uh, there's a few. Ch- there's massive challenges for for Rams and Australian rugby in that there's not great depth first and foremost. So you're working off a much smaller base uh, than New Zealanders. You know, you look at the All Blacks bench and they've got the three Barrett brothers sitting there waiting to come on, and then you you know you compare that to Australia's stocks at, at number ten per se. So. Um, so the second element to that is, is experience that test rugby matters big time, as you touched on then in those key positions. And, and you look at the Wallabies and they've pretty much got rook, been running with rookie halves. And and that comes back to what Christy was saying in terms of um, identifying space. And, and, and there's no doubt that the Wallabies are going through massive growing pains there. A couple of big time errors from Noel Lolosio were, um, you know, uh, Crucial, you know, the intercept, the the miss kick, uh, his goal kicking under pressure and, and big time tests. So there's no doubt that he's still learning and developing, but there's not a lot of options there. So you're missing James O'Connor big time. Uh, I, I like that Ren stuck with Pay McDermott and you can see that progression coming there rather than going back to Nick White, who, who was a, a great player in his own right. So look, I think they will get better. And it was also interesting to hear Ren's talk about uh, you know, the Wallabies potentially having 14 tests this year and, and that being gold for them. So, yeah, it's it's tough. You know, you want results, you want the bledders low, you, uh, but you, I guess you do need to have some perspective that you're coming off a, a French series. Um, so that was a, a success. Um, so, look, I think there is hope, but uh, I think depth is the massive challenge and, and learning on the go and, and showing those consistent improvements. Um, and... Yeah, I guess the depth element is, is something we're going to touch on later with the change with the eligibility rule and, and whether that's going to help or hinder Australian rugby. So that, that's going to be a ma- play a massive role. Yeah, we'll come to uh, news overnight. The ghetto law could be set for a shift or at least an overhaul um, perhaps uh, after the spring tour later this year. Um, Christy's got some news on that. Um, Christy, to you now, um, what... What's left? Obviously, as Liam said there, there's plenty of rugby left for this Wallabies team to play this year. Um, you've got an entire rugby championship. And and I guess one way to look at it is that the Wallabies, you know, you can put the Bledisloe to one side now and think, you know, we throw all our energy into the rugby championship. You've got two. We've got a first another test against the All Blacks. Um, we know how they bounced back last year in, in Brisbane. Um, probably their best performance um, of... Uh, Dave Rennie's first year in charge and you get two cracks at South Africa, two cracks at Argentina and then a spring tour. So there's a lot more rugby, of course, we'll say COVID pending um, at this point because you never quite know what's going to happen at the moment um, to go for this team this year. Uh, but how how much of a, uh, I guess, a setback um, mentally is that that demoralising second half, do you think, on the weekend and, and how much of an effect will it have on this this young playing group, or conversely, um, do these young guys have they got the ability to just shake it up, shake it off, and and move on? Well, we'll see. We don't really know because what these guys are going through is a lot of them are playing their second year of rugby, not just test rugby, but professional rugby, and that, that's the thing that people have got to put into perspective is is it's how far away these guys are from really being able to take the international stage. Uh, and perform well. Yeah, 14 tests is, is, is quite a few and you compare that to the six that they played last year. I think the other thing you've got to put into uh, context is of the 11 tests that David Rennie's had in charge, six of them have been against the All Blacks. Like, 
not, not, no one in the world is playing that many against New Zealand. Yes, they may not be the world champions, but they are, everyone still probably acknowledges, are the, the number one powerhouse rugby nation in the world. Um, one thing about, you know, we've heard a lot about Aura recently and in um, Andrew Calloway's line, it was probably mis, misguided and he probably in re- reflection wouldn't have wanted to use that word. And we know that reporters, yes, they have the ability to pluck out a few words, but it wasn't the context of saying that the All Blacks have lost their Aura. But I don't think that the Springboks have the same, yes, they're the world champions. Yes, they've just taken down the British and Irish Lions. But the Wallabies, in fact, have had a lot of success against the Springboks. Um, You know, they're winning 50% of their games and you compare that to 20% against New Zealand. Um, Australia, it's a completely different way that the Springboks play. For some unknown reason that the Wallabies love to, let's try to beat the New Zealanders in the best way, uh, how New Zealand likes to play rugby. Uh, no one is taking down the All Blacks if you're playing that free-flowing brand of rugby where you try to beat them on the counter and you, you're playing on quickly from penalties and we're going to tap and go inside around half inside the opening 20 minutes. It's just not going to be done. But against uh, against, and it's interesting on that point that the two games that Australia's had relative success against the All Blacks in the last two years, Wellington 16 all. It was off the back of Nick White and box kicking and playing a territory-based game that they found some success and put them under under pressure against against the All Blacks in Brisbane. It came from a, a kick, a first-phase kick, chip kick over the top that had some, posed some difficulties for for the All Blacks. And I note that when 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 Noel Olaseo put the chip kick over the top, the Wallabies, in fact, um, in the opening couple of minutes, the Wallabies got the ball back. It's just, no, well, I see, unfortunately, second phase, or you could might say first phase because New Zealand knocked it on through the intercepts. So it, it, it's, it's, like, it's like the Wallabies need to dumb down their game, I think, a little bit to, to, to actually progress forward at the moment. They will, I think, approach the Springboks in, in a different manner. And, and the Springboks playing away from home, it won't be nearly as easy for them I wonder, and, and you know, the breaking news over the last few hours about Todd Kefu and, and his um, and, and the stabbing, the, you know, this is horrific news. But for an Australian side that needs to move on, that needs to be galvanised by something, you take inspiration from a bloke that left everything on the park, that was one of the hardest edged kind of guys going around in Todd Kefu. And, and I think the Wallabies should hopefully, hopefully, Todd Kefu pulls through here. But fingers crossed that the Wallabies take some of the lessons and take some of the characteristics from the number eight, uh, the Queensland Reds number eight, and leave it out in the park because that's a bloke that you should be playing for. Christy, I'll put this question to you then. You talk about dumbing it down. Um, the man in the number 10 shirt uh, in Brisbane last year was Reese Hodge. Now, would you be tempted? I can't see Dave Rennie doing it this time around, but to throw Reese Hodge back in there again, in Perth in, in two weeks' time. Um, you're given Lola CO two cracks, and, yeah, there's some good parts to his game, but there's obviously some some glaring uh, deficiencies he needs to work on at this point too. Um, or would that be simply admitting defeat if you're Dave Rennie and saying, look, oh, bugger this, we'll go back to what worked last year. Um, let's forget the, the clear kind of plan we're trying to put in place here for the future. We just need to win this game. It's a great question. One they might have a good perspective on too, but... I, I, I look at that almost in the same way as I made mention that I think Darcy Swain is going to be a very, very good player for the Wallabies, the second rower. 
but this is his first year of Test rugby, and we've seen him play three, well, a couple of games against France, perform well. Then he gets promoted, and he starts, and he starts again against the All Blacks, and again in another Test. This this has the, the makings of Ned Hannigan, who's who was a good player, but got rushed into the Wallaby side in his first year of Super Rugby. And all of a sudden, he's playing six, seven tests for the Wallabies. And by the end of it, young players just can't keep going because they haven't had the, you know, the engine can't keep going when you're not fully developed from both a physical and a mental aspect of having to get up and get up and get up and go. Perhaps the same principle should be applied with Noel Olaseo. We, we know that this guy's an exciting young prospect. I don't think you just push him to the side completely. But yeah, like maybe maybe you do go, no, get wear the 22 jersey for a little bit, learn your craft a bit more. I don't think he should be, be pushed to the side completely. Um, he's a confident kid. And we saw actually that the the fourth Bledisloe after his debut, which ended, which, you know, he scored a try in fact in Sydney. Um, and, 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 and that was a, a good moment for him. But he was included on the bench the next week. And he and Tate McDermott came on and then added a lot of impetus that helped the Wallabies get across the line. Um, maybe a, a similar thing could happen. And, and whether or not Reese Hodge or indeed James O'Connor is the right person to do that, perhaps, yeah. But I'd be interested to see what, what Liam thinks too. Yeah, I'll, 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 yeah, it's a tough scenario, isn't it? Because you, you speak about the the element of just rocking a young guy's confidence and and it's it's hard to know quite how how long you persist and how how much you push and I don't think he's ready yet but at the same point I think you you got to stick with him because Reese Hodge is, is not an out and out ten so so the benefits of sticking with, with Noah and just giving him more time in the saddle and then when James O'Connor's right you know potentially then you bring him back and you can. He's he's now back to the bench and and pro- progress him that way. But I think I think the benefits of sticking with him probably outweigh the the risks of of completely shattering his confidence. The the other thing, Sam, I think that the Wallabies how they want to play and how Dave Rennie wants to play that's not suited. I don't think to a Reese Hodge kind of game. Um, I think Scott Johnson, from my understanding, is a big fan of of Reese Hodge, but I think that. Reese is probably playing more of a South African sort of style of game. Um, so it, it depends where you want to get to. But I think Noah is, is, is a kid that who's, he's not as mercurial and he's not as, um, I don't think, will have the, the hot and cold nature of a Quade Cooper, perhaps. I think someone like he, he you know, Dan McKellar is a really good person to be able to um to use as a mentor and similarly with guys like James Slipper, who he plays with at the Brumbies, just to keep him grounded, I think is an important thing. Liam, before we come to the All Blacks and what they might look to do uh, in Perth and beyond um, against South Africa and Argentina, um, I want to touch on yellow cards, guys. And uh, certainly there's a, there was a lot of um, feedback on, on social media or outbursts, whatever you want to call it in that first half. Um, calling for All Blacks players to go to the bin earlier than Artie Sevilla eventually did there um, in the uh, in the second half. And I had a great laugh there just before halftime when uh, when Brendan Pickerel said to Michael Hooper, um, uh, do you want to play? Uh, indicating, do you want to go from a quick tap? And and Hooper quickly responded, no, I want a, I want a yellow card, mate. Um, so he was clearly feeling it. Um, I mean, certainly in the lead up to Andrew Kellaway's try uh 
there at the start of the match, um, which followed Ioani's um, match opener, uh, there was, you know, that was a pretty blatant just coming in from the side, taking out the, uh, I think it was Matt Phillip there, was trying to clear the ball, um, whether it was, might have been Dalton Papali'i there um, or Akira, um, uh, memory serves. And then later again, when Papali'i uh, did, um, in just before Pickerel uh, said that to Hooper on that play, and eventually they scored through Tate McDermott at half time now. Now, on both occasions, the Wallabies go and they, they get the try that they're after. But I guess it's like looking at when, say, um, a mall is pulled down uh, from a five metre drive and the, the referee does a double whammy of uh, penalty try and, and yellow card. Um, now, is uh, you feel for the Wallabies because they they rightfully feel you know that they've they've been done a wrong here with with the All Blacks infringing, but they get their try and you kind of everyone forgets about it. Now eventually Sevilla goes to the bin and and we know BPA misses the line out throw and and that's the end of the game pretty much from there on out. But is there a case, Christy? I'll come to you to start with. Um, should you know referees be more inclined to? to go for the card earlier um, or does it needs to be some kind of retrospective treatment of, of incidents like that when, um, you know, teams do score so quickly afterwards that after that warning? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I think that the Wallabies, it just fell on their lap. They would have been hoping for a yellow card. I don't think they would have thought it would happen inside the opening two minutes. And it was probably too, you think about it, it's probably too easy. And then it allows you just to go, oh, geez, this didn't actually work. You know, had there been the yellow card a minute before half time, it allows Dave Rennie just to go, guys, we'll just bring it back. This is how we work the situation because the Wallabies in Australian rugby sides have bombed yellow cards in the past. And you think about, I, I tweeted at the time, it'd be great to know the stats around how many points the All Blacks score compared to the Wallabies when these yellow cards that are given. You, you're right, you, Brendan Prickle probably should have given a yellow card. It was cynical, it was straight in front of him. Um, and I wonder whether or not you, you listen to the tone of Sam Whitelock and there was a couple of times where the line out where he got pinged for going across the line out and he said, oh, yeah, but I've got, I got the ball there. And then later on, the All Blacks have been pinged again. Um, Sam Whitelock goes, but yeah, Brendan, can I just have a word? We're getting, we're getting taken past the clean out. We're, they're taking us past. That's why we're actually offside. And the tone, it's just like he's he's relaxed out there, whereas the exacerbated Michael Hooper's going, I want a yellow card. Look, it, there's, these are little things that the All Blacks and Richie McCaw was so good at, at planting those seeds. And I wonder whether or not just that tone just allowed Brendan Pickle to go, we'll give him one more chance. Um, you're right, it should have been a yellow card. I think as simple as that, it, it denies what could have been a try. The Wallabies have got all the momentum uh, they probably only need a sling it wide. There might have been an intercept try. Uh, that probably you could bank that one for the All Blacks. But if they had have slung it wide, they, they should have scored there because all the numbers were around the ruck. If you're enjoying this podcast, swipe over and check out the ESPN Australia Podcast Network. We're discussing the best stories on the sports you love with on-the-ground takes and fresh voices covering the names and games you tune in for. Liam, um, obviously there was a bloke by the name of Richie McCaw who was, his name was Mud over this side of the Tasman for, um, I don't know how long it was, it seemed like forever uh, in the end there that uh, he used to get away with with so much of the breakdown and 
um, you know, clearly there were a couple of incidents, as we mentioned there, that were blatant, um, and you would have to say cynical infringements. Um, are we Aussies having a whinge, or is there a case here to say that uh, yellow cards should have come, and, and perhaps that's something to look out for um, as we go on through the rugby championship? Yeah, no, um, I, I agree that Dalton, in particular, should have been yellowed, and I think you, uh, the reflection of that is, is the yellow that came for Artie just after halftime. It's very unusual for warnings to carry over into another half and for a card to come that, that quickly, so that's probably a reflection that that Pickerel, uh, you know, within himself might have thought, okay, I've got that one wrong. I'm going to be very tough from here on in. And, and that, I think that was a, a direct reaction to that. So, look, Dalton got very lucky there. And, you know, perhaps if that match is in Australia or if it's in South Africa, I think, you know, that, that car probably would have come earlier as well. I think the nature of the beast is, is the home team generally gets the rub of the green or a bit more leniency. And I think, what Christy's saying about Sam Whitelock, he's an incredible captain. And uh, the temperament that you approach the referee definitely matters. You know, when when, uh, when it's Michael Hooper or Aaron Smith, you know, he's coming at you full noise, barking away, yelling. You, you're not going to be as receptive as somebody's coming up and, and giving you a wee rub on the back or uh, being very calm and assured about it. And Richie was very good at that as well. And we saw that in South Africa where uh, the Springboks were uh, complaints amongst the myriad of complaints about Sir Khaleesi not getting a fair go with the referee. I didn't, I didn't really buy into that, but different captains, I think, have, have better rapports and relationships with referees, so that plays a factor as well. So uh, I think it's up to the referee to, to stamp that sort of thing out early as well. If, if there's a very cynical infringement, it doesn't really matter when it is, how early. If you crack down on that immediately and say, well, I'm not going to tolerate that, then... Uh, the players get the message fairly quickly, whereas if you let it go, then they're more likely to keep pushing those boundaries. So it's up to the man with the whistle to, to draw a line pretty early. Let's move to New Zealand and then look a little bit further ahead for, for the rest of their season, uh, Liam. Um, obviously, uh, Perth looks like being potentially the host now of the entire rugby championship and, and not having the two tests against the Springboks in New Zealand. Uh, of course, the centenary test against the box. Would have been a huge occasion and maybe by some miracle it can still happen in New Zealand if uh, if we keep our uh, some positive thoughts out there in the uh, in the universe but it's certainly looking unlikely um but what do you suspect well first off what would you rate I guess that All Blacks performance um out of 10 on the weekend and and what do you suspect Ian Foster might do for this this uh opening test or sorry the um the third Bledisloe and uh, and second rugby championship test against the Wallabies in Perth in two weeks' time. Um, he made a few changes last year for the Brisbane game and um, they didn't quite come off. Um, do you think, given there's a two-week break here, um, he might stick with the same side pretty much that's done the job in, in New Zealand so far or or just look to rotate things with an eye on um, bigger games in the championship to come? I think, first of all, you'd have to be pretty uh, cynical and grouchy to, to not give the All Blacks an eight, nine out of 10 for that performance. You know, it's pretty hard to ask for too much more. I think their line-out was a wee bit shaky at times, but just the clinical nature of, of taking the opportunities, as Christy mentioned, uh, you know, the, the quick ball, uh, the strikes off counter-attack, the scrum was really good. Uh, the bench made a massive difference, which didn't the previous week, so they made, their discipline was, was a lot better. So they made some major shifts in, in the space of a week. So... I think that performance 
is equal to uh, the, the performance in Sydney last year as, as, the, as the best of uh, Ian Foster's short tenure. Um, and it'd be nice to see them strengthen together some consistency now and really build on that. So uh, in terms of the third test in, in Perth, I, I don't envision them making the same amount of changes. It was pretty much a whole new 15. Um, and I think that got exposed. And Ian Foster was asked about that yesterday, and he said he, he has no regrets about that because they had six tests in a year. You know, he he was a bit um, hamstrung, I guess, in, in, in the time frame to try and give a whole host of guys opportunities. Looking ahead to Perth, I think they might might bring in guys like Geordie Barrett, needs a run at fullback. Damien McKenzie made a good four errors, I think, in the first 10 minutes, really struggled at the back. Uh, for the third test in Perth, I think they'll, they'll make some tweaks around the edges. Maybe bring a guy like Ethan Blackadder onto the bench. He's been pretty primed for, for another opportunity. Um, maybe Brad Webber comes into the mix on the bench. Maybe Bowden gets a crack at 10, but I don't see them making widespread changes. Christy, uh, from a Wallabies perspective, we also touched on, obviously, a couple of positional changes perhaps already, but there's a guy over there in Perth um, who's come back from Tokyo, uh, just like you have. He's done his quarantine, um, Sema Karevi. Uh, now, we're going to come, as we mentioned also earlier, to the Gido Law a little bit later as well, but um, he's available right now. He's been brought in under the Gido Law as it stands at the minute. Um, we know how well he played last time in Perth uh, in that Bledisloe game in 2019 and that famous run over the top of Bowdoin Barrett. Um, would you be very tempted to give him a run uh, at number 12 uh, for the Wallabies uh, in two weeks' time? Or is it simply not enough uh, match fitness behind him? Oh, I wouldn't just be tempted. I would play him, um, I think, unquestionably. I think this would be a great opportunity to as well is to go, what does a three, four, five, a, a guy now in his what, seventh year of professional rugby and go, how does a, a bloke in his seventh year of professional rugby stack up to a guy next in, in his second, someone like a Hunter Paisami or a Lenny Katow? How do they how do they compare? Because it will give you a greater opportunity to go, right, we're about to blow open these eligibility laws. What's the real benefit behind bringing someone like that back in? Karebi was a powerhouse and it was such a devastating blow when he left. And we're going to talk perhaps around around um, private equity and what that might change because from my understanding, those sorts of things are, are quickly heating up and, and, and that will change the state of, um, of rugby in, in the country and also probably New Zealand too. Finally, they're going to probably be back at an even playing kill compared to some of the, the rich nations in Japan and France and the UK. Um, I'll definitely be bringing Karibi back in. And whether or not you're starting at 12 or 13, I'm not sure. But I think you'd be playing him alongside Hunter Paisami at the moment. Um, uh, elsewhere, I think it's time that we get to see Isaac Rotter. I, I, from my understanding, too, Dave Rennie didn't have him as he's in his top two or three locks when he first arrived in Australian rugby last year, which I was surprised about. But that also might explain why he hasn't been rushed in immediately. But this is a guy that's got 20-odd caps behind him, played at a World Cup, started a World Cup. I think that you can't, um, you know, he's 24, 25. He should be starting to come into the problem with his career now. Um, elsewhere, I, I wouldn't be making wholesale changes. I think one or two, but 
this is what you're going to get when you've got a very young side. I think Matt Tamur, Nick McArdle made mention in, in coverage before Saturday's game going, this seems like a, a big game for Matt Tamur. Uh, I think we saw what Matt Tamur is. He's a, he's a reasonable player, but I don't think he's delivering you a World Cup. And I didn't think that previously. Uh, a guy that Sean Rugby still didn't know whether or not he was a 10 or a 12. He still thinks he's a 10, but no one else does. Um, it probably says a little bit about him. You, you couldn't say a bad word about Matt Tamur. He's, he provides a lot for the squad, but I don't think he's a starting 15 kind of player. So I'd be moving on from there and, and still keep, keeping him in the system. And, and he's a great player, maybe to bring off the bench. Um, Andrew Calloway, do you, do you think about him being a fullback? Um, he, he's played a lot there previously. He's so assured. Um, there's a calmness about him. Or do you allow him to continue to chip away on the wing where he's been one of Australia's, probably his best player over the two test matches, probably the most consistent player alongside Hoops, um, Michael Hooper. So uh, I, w- I wouldn't be making huge changes, no. I think calmness, Christy, you said it there with with Kellaway is, is, is a really, really good word. I don't share the same belief uh, or I don't think you can use that word with Tom Banks. There's still very much a, a bit of deer in the headlights of Tom Banks, I, I think, at, at fullback. And you look at the way that, that Kellaway finished, certainly that, that cross-kick try. Now, a lot of blokes would just pin their ears back and, and go for the corner there. But the poise showed to just prop, step back inside. There was another occasion, I think, in the lead-up to the, the yellow card sequence that didn't happen and then, the, sorry, the McDermott try when he cut back inside and, and beat a few defenders as well. We know he finished that try from that um, pass that he, he received from Banks, again, to, to finish with a double. And um, there's a bit of poise about him and he, he looks a very balanced runner and, and just a guy who, you know, he's probably not going to make a lot of mistakes. And and at this point, I think we've, we've been talking about it all year that we've we're not convinced by Tom Banks at fullback and there might be an opportunity to, to bring Callaway in and perhaps you throw Tom Wright back in for another chance at the wing or, you know, you've got Jordan Pattaya there as well, another option. So uh, there's, there's clearly, you know, there's, there's, there's things for, for Dave Rennie and his Wallabies co-coaches to, to consider there. Um, Lockie Swinton, I thought, was, was pretty ordinary on the weekend. We, we, we mentioned the, the drop ball that, um, for the turnover that led to the Retallic try. Um, if you if you're having him in there just for a couple of big hits, then it's I'm sorry, it's not doing enough for me. If purely on aggression and and being that enforcer on defence, um, you know we saw uh, and Sonny Bill actually mentioned it in uh, in Stan Sport commentary. If you look at those All Blacks, Lucy's and and Akira, and I know Liam Akira's been a work in progress now for for many years. There's, there was talk, you know, when he first came on that this guy was going to go on and play a hundred tests for the All Blacks and be an all time great just because what he could do with the ball, but it certainly hasn't happened overnight, but this year on the back of a couple of really solid Super Rugby old Tatarawa seasons, he's, he's finally hitting his straps. So um, there's things to consider there for the Wallabies, no doubt. Um, and I, I wouldn't mind seeing just a, a couple of uh, positional uh, changes there. Boys, um, we've mentioned it uh, a couple of times already. Uh, news on Sunday, firstly in the Herald, and then Christy, you've also spoken with um, with both Hamish McLennan and, and Andy Marinos, the RA Chairman and Chief Executive, respectively, uh, changes coming for the Giddo Law um, now appear to be all but certain. Um, we saw Dave Rennie um, alter it last year and, and extend into this year where he could bring two guys who didn't have that 60 cap threshold or the seven years service. Um, 
and he's uh, he's put that in play this year. He didn't last year, uh, of course, with Karevi and Duncan Paiua, um, who are both in the squad for and the rugby championship, and Quade Cooper. Although he's, I guess, the first up, the original Gitto Lockers, and that he has played seventy tests. Um, but now that that potentially could go out the window, now obviously there's a bit of detail to work through. I believe Phil War and, and Daniel Herbert are, are working through some potential details of it, um, looking at perhaps reducing that down to say two or three years um, of service to Australian rugby or, or Super Rugby rather, and and maybe I don't know a 20 or a 30 test threshold. Um, Christy, I'll come to you firstly. Uh, what exactly do you know at this point? Well, again, I think. My understanding is that, yeah, the ramifications, the permutations around how it will be built are, are far from clear, whether or not it's two, I mean, having spoken to both both the, the high uh, administrators yesterday, that um, it might not even come into effect this year. Whether or not you see a, a number of players pull out by the end of the spring tour, uh, we know that three of them have children uh, around the corner does a, a two-month tour with another couple of weeks of quarantine at the end, that might not be something that some players are willing to do. And, and you can understand that if, if that's the case. And then you might see some players called from Europe where you don't have these strong, um, stringent policies. You may see some players go there for the first half of the tour and perhaps leave. So I think it's unfolding what, what will actually transpire this year. But I, I think... I think it's been a long time coming, hasn't it? That we, we've, we've known for a while that something needed to change, something needed to give. What I, my understanding is that the, the big concern and a lot of people going, oh, what about the grassroots? You're missing the, the issue here. I, I think it's, it's more simple than that. It's not, we, we, they're not pushing grassroots to the side here. They're saying, well, we need to make some changes pretty quickly that may influence how the Wallabies go through to the 2023 World Cup. But at the same time, we're going to see an injection of cash through through private equity, which they're going to try to encourage players to come home because they'll be targeting a British and Irish Lions series in 2025. And you may have already seen some of those players come back already. And then a home cut World Cup in 2027, fingers crossed. With that, they're going to hope that there's this injection of cash where they're going to be able to pay some of these players they're going to see perhaps the biggest opportunity to inspire a nation and getting people playing rugby is through success through the Wallabies. It's not through Super Rugby, it's through the Wallabies. That's what captures the imagination. And then in addition to that, they're going to hope that they're going to be injecting a lot of this cash into grassroots, into a... Uh, it hasn't quite been formulated how they want to do it, but in the Western Sydney, in the Penrith region, which is about to lose the Penrith Emus and it shoots shield area they're definitely going to be targeting areas out there to try to get players through the system and, and somehow fix up the pathways there I know that for a fact having spoken to to the chair yesterday so um it, it's yeah what what that means for super rugby like a lot of the contracts are already in place for next year and for 2022 you're not going to be able to see players just leave in their droves and a lot of the positions overseas are already occupied they're already filled so i don't think we have to be too concerned about what will happen in 2022 and then with the world cup around the corner uh, i think players will want to stay in australia so that they can be you know put their names in front of dave rennie ahead of 2023 
Liam, uh, when I think about this and I, I put on, you know, a New Zealand perspective for a moment and if I'm uh, Mark Robinson and, and NZR and I'm trying to get this Super Rugby competition, um, 12 teams up for next year and, and beyond and making that the, you know, the, the Blue Ribbon um, Club competition for this part of the world um, and then suddenly this, come, this news comes out of Australia and I think to myself, well, just coming off a, a you know, a trans-Tasman campaign where Australian teams won two of 25 games and then let's say that this opens up an opportunity to go and pick up about another two or three best players from, say, the, the Reds and, and the Brumbies who are the most competitive and then take, you know, take, say, an Andrew Kellaway out of the Rebels and, um, you know, we know Izzy Nicerani's going off and there's a couple of their best and we know the Waratahs, the, the absolute, um, you know, depths that they plunged to this year. And then I'm thinking ahead to a competition without those extra, you know, smattinger of players across those Aussie teams. And I'm going, well, where are these, you know, where's the competitiveness going to come in this new tournament I'm trying to get up and running now? Is this, um, you know, setting alarm bells off in, in New Zealand, do you think? I think it'd be a major concern, yeah. You mentioned that the record of the Australian teams there, and I, I think there's a fairly overwhelming uh, belief that there's not the depth already to sustain five teams. And I know there's been various discussions back and forth about that. And this puts that at further risk. And I, and I think if you look at South Africa, who have a, a great depth of talent, you, you look at their domestic sides and how much it's weakened those teams since they've opened up the rule to select from overseas. So, yes, it might have worked for the Springboks. Um, you know, that they, they won the World Cup by selecting a number of those players from abroad, but the competitiveness of their Super Rugby teams uh, and, and then and their, their new uh, competition up north, but also when the British and Irish Lions were there, they were just complete blowouts, you know. So uh, um, it's basically a, a development breeding ground of, you know, high school players progressing straight to these teams um, with a, a smattering of, of, of Springboks. So, yeah, I think New Zealand rugby would have major concerns and, you know, particularly with the announcement coming off the back of the Bledisloe Cup, you know, uh, one-sided match as it was, it, it does sort of smack of, of, of being a, a bit panicked. And, uh, you know, when you break it down, how many players are you realistically going to inject into that Wallabies team? You know, if you look at this year and next, there might be, what, like four, five maybe? Um, so, look, and New Zealand's always resisted this because once you open that door, you can't close it. So I think that's the major concern. You might not see a flood of players immediately, but, you know, if the, if, if the money's on offer in Japan or France or wherever and there's the ability to play for the Wallabies, then still, then why would you stay home? You know, so that you do Lane, risk. What, 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 what's the alternative here, mate? Because Australian rugby has been sliding and sliding away. And I just think of quicksand and someone just fading and putting their hand up and going, well, what else do we do? Because, you know, the Wallabies, the Wallabies have been smashed for 19 years now in, in, in Bledisloe Cups. Um, Super Rugby, we, we know that there's been three winners since, what, 2004, 2011, 2014. Um, I don't think there's another alternative. You know, Australian Rugby needs to unlock a lot of players. And, and if you're farewelling a few players from Super Rugby, not everyone's going to be going, but if you're, if you're farewelling some of the players and you're allowing... A Matt Tamua, who you've paid, you know, a lot of money to bring back, and we're paying, you know, close to a million dollars for someone like Matt Tamua to come back. When you could be investing that in 
trying to get the 14, 15, 16-year-olds to come through. And you then just continue to release some of those guys to go overseas and then be able to call them back for international duty. I don't think that's a bad option because I, I can't see another alternative. It's, it's not a bad option, but there is a number of pitfalls as well because when you bring these guys back, uh, well, A, you have no control over them when they're abroad. So they go to France and they just get absolutely smashed week after week after week. And then they come back and they've been playing a completely different style of football. <coughs> you haven't had any contact with them. They get run into the ground. So I don't think it's as seamless as perhaps the Springboks have made it look either. So, yep, Rugby Australia is in a rock and a hard place, but I personally don't think this is the answer. Well, I, but, but once again, though, like, you know, no disrespect to, to the All Blacks and, and so forth. Of course, they're going to have that option. But every single person, you know, most people grow up wanting to be an All Black in New Zealand. That's not the case in Australian rugby. You know, it's it's numbered. It's it's so far down the pecking order. It's not funny. So I, I agree. And Dave Rennie, that's been one of the great concerns. But we're not looking at a French competition these days, which was run, you know, five, six, seven years ago. They've actually tightened up their... Um, amount of players that can play in each of these teams. Um, it's it's J- Japan. Japan's now the one, mate. The, the, the sums on, on offer being up there and and Liam, um, you know, Damian McKenzie signed for a sabbatical. I'll let Christy finish, but then perhaps you could touch on whether, you know, this sabbatical plan is going to continue to work for, for New, Ze- New Zealand rugby. Sorry, Christy. Well, yeah, how the Japanese season is run, like they're changing their season and the details around that willy-nilly at the moment. You, you, we don't really even know when the seasons start and finish at the moment because they've been changed every second year recently. There's definitely going to have to be a, a considered approach to how long the Japanese season goes for. And, and maybe you start to not just see that the provincial player, the, you know, the, the Waratah player play for four months, but perhaps they start to play for seven months and it could be three months in Japan and, and three months in Australia. And then you're able to have more control. You're able to look at the players. And we all know that Robbie Dean's former Wallabies coach and others that have been saying that it's not going to be long before these Japanese teams are integrated into a, a European Champions Cup kind of trophy tournament which is that is that the best outcome then for australia and new zealand that that competition gets up and running and suddenly you know the concerns about as liam mentioned guys playing in france where they get thrashed for for 12 months of the year and come back when they're all busted and um we know the rugby up in japan's a little bit different that this competition that keeps getting kind of thrown up by robbie deans and others gets up and running sooner rather than later and you know what ian foster and dave rennie are happy for you know, five to 10 of their best to go up there and play for Japanese teams that are still playing against New Zealand teams and Australian teams. It's probably the only solution and it has to be, I think. Um, you know, private equity is going to change some things, but you can't offer every player $600,000, can you, um, to stay? So they're going to have to be very astute with how they um, use that injection of money because as we've seen over the last two decades, money has been wasted. They're going to be able to, they can't just afford to, to start handing out contracts left, right and centre. But this is another reason why Japan need to, to be, the Southern Hemisphere needs to entice Japan to join a rugby championship because if they join the North, then, well, then you can say goodbye. Liam, just before we finish, a word on where you think New Zealand's heading on this front. Yeah, because even from a New Zealand perspective, the, the sabbaticals, I guess, are the, the best of a, of a bad situation because 
Um, it works for some players, but it doesn't work for others. You know, um, Sam Whitelock, Brody Retallick have, have gone away to Japan and come back, and that, that worked for them. them. But then you see Bowden Barrett, and uh, he had a whole season at 10 over there playing for Suntory, and uh, he's come back and found himself behind Richie Mwanga on the bench. So <coughs> I think there's real concerns there for, for Damien McKenzie as well. He's just trying to establish himself. And that fullback role, and you go away for five months, find um, Geordie Barrett and uh, Will Jordan have been smashing down the door in Super Rugby, and, and you come back and you haven't been playing in that that same level of competition, and you struggle to get that form back. So, you know, um, from a financial perspective, I think for New Zealand and Australia, it's really nice to have that money off the books, and for those players to go away and, and earn sums that they can only dream of in that length of time but uh from a, a form and a and a cohesion perspective i think there's major risks there too yeah priorities uh, both for the player and for the governing bodies clearly to be ironed out over the next uh coming months and coming years a fascinating space to watch there gents uh thanks for coming on today obviously um you know it's a, it's a tough day to be an australian rugby fan but we've had plenty of Plenty of them over the last uh, 20 years and probably uh, have a few more yet. Christy, um, mate, uh, all the best with the remainder of, uh, of quarantine. You're, uh, you're almost approaching the halfway mark. And, and Liam, uh, yep, uh, thanks for coming on, mate, and, uh, and your contributions to ESPN will continue through the Rugby Championship. Uh, gents, thanks again.